The reading's taken from Mark 1, um, verses 9 to 13. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came down from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the spirit sent him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. Brilliant. Thank you, Marianne. Should we just pray? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your presence here. And I pray that you would speak to us this morning for your glory. Amen. Well, we're still at the beginning of a new year, aren't we? If I can um, claim that. Um, and it's often a time of uh, looking ahead and uh, planning, perhaps getting the diaries out, getting excited for what's to come. Uh, did anyone make a re- any resolutions this year? Just put up your hand. One person made a resolution. Well, you know what the score is, because apparently by this point in January, 92% of people who made a resolution on the 1st of January have already given up. But I know that you're part of the 8%, so that's okay. Um, But you know what the score is. But whether we are bothered about doing resolutions or not, it's a time at the beginning of a new year when we're thinking about perhaps what we're doing with our lives. Where is my life heading? What am I doing? Um, I was chatting with a friend just this week, and he was saying, I'm just not sure about my job, if it's the right thing. Is it what I'm meant to be doing? Should I be exploring other options? And these are the kind of questions that we might be having in different spheres of our life. And as a church, at the beginning of a new term, it's good to reflect on our vision together. What are we about as a church? What is our why? Why do we uh, exist? Where are we going? What does the year ahead look like? And so in a few weeks' time, on the 5th of February, we're going to have a Vision Sunday when I'll be able to share a little bit more about some plans for the next few months and also what I sense God's saying to us as a church and we'll have an opportunity to make a financial commitment to that vision. But take a step back. Our vision as a church, and I guess the vision for every church really, is the kingdom of God. And the vision for this church is the kingdom of God in Sydenham and Forest Hill and across southeast London. That is why we exist. Uh, The church is really the only organization that exists for the benefit of its non-members. That's why we are here, the kingdom of God. Or put it another way, we want to see heaven come in Sydenham and Forest Hill and across southeast London. We want to see the love of Jesus extended. And what does it look like? What does it look like when heaven comes? It looks like Jesus on the throne. So we want to see Jesus at the center of every life. It looks like healing because there's no sickness or pain. It looks like wholeness because it's not just healing physically, but it's healing of our inner lives. It looks like freedom. It looks like peace and justice for the oppressed in our community, the poor, the downtrodden, 
It looks like joy and hope and peace and love in the presence of God come in its fullness. That is our vision. That's why we exist. That's what we're all about. But the thing is, when we pray, your kingdom come, we're not just praying that for our local community, but that's a prayer for ourselves as well and our own lives. And so this morning we're starting a a sermon series called Start With Me. And it's based on the principle that the more we experience God's kingdom come in our lives, the more we'll be able to share that with power in our local community and to those around us in our workplaces and our streets and with our friends. Does that make sense? The more we're transformed by Jesus' love, the more we can partner with God in bringing transformation and hope to a hurting and broken world. And we know that the world at the moment has many challenges. And I truly believe it's a time for the church not to shy away, but to stand up and to shine a light. And that's part of our vision for this year. But it all begins with us, and it all begins in here. So that's why we're saying, start with me. And over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at the first chapter of Mark's Gospel, which is the beginning or just before the start of Jesus' ministry. And we're going to ask what was going on sort of under the surface in Jesus' life that enabled him to do what he did and to bring the kingdom of God uh, as he did. Because for us as disciples of Jesus, apprentices to Jesus, Jesus is our model for life. So if it worked for Jesus, it's probably going to work for us. And today we're looking at receiving the Father's love from Mark 1, 9 to 13. So if you have a Bible, you can get it out on your smartphone and we've got paper, old-fashioned copies at the back, Mark 1, 9 to 13. And we've had it read, but I'm just going to read it once more just to remind us. And it says this, at that time Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. And as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him as a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, whom I love, and with you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the desert, and he was in the desert for 40 days. He was tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels attended him. And there are two main lessons, really, that I want to pull out from this passage. And the first is this, before you wake up in the morning, you are enough. Before you begin your week, before you begin this year, you are enough and God delights in you. That is something that Jesus knew in his life and that's part of what it means to have the kingdom come in our hearts, to know that we are beloved of God regardless of what we do. Now, this is the first scene where we meet Jesus in Mark's gospel. Mark doesn't bother with the birth narratives. We don't get the Christmas story in Mark. We simply get John the Baptist preparing the way, the Messiah is coming, and then bang, verse 9, Jesus begins. And this is the first scene, the baptism of Jesus. And I don't think you can underestimate the significance of this event. It appears in Matthew, it appears in Mark, it also appears in Luke. And when you think about it, it's quite strange that Jesus was baptized. I mean, it might make sense for us to be baptized as we turn from our old life, turning away from God to our new life towards God, that we're risen again with him. That all makes sense. But if Jesus was sinless, 
Why did he need to get baptized? I think it's because he needed this moment of affirmation from the Father, to receive the Father's love before he was going to do anything. You know, I love the fact that this happens before Jesus had done anything of note in his life. Up until this point, his life had been pretty ordinary. He lived as a carpenter on the northern outskirts of Israel. He hadn't healed anyone. He hadn't preached. He hadn't cast out demons. No one's life had been transformed. He had, in a sense, simply existed. And yet these are the words that he hears. You are my son whom I love, and with you I am well pleased. This is unconditional love. And I wonder if there's someone in your life who brings you joy just for being themselves, just makes you smile for being in the room. They don't have to do anything for you. Uh, You don't employ them. They're not contracted uh, by you to do anything. Just being themselves makes you smile and brings you joy. Have you got someone in your mind for that? That is what God thinks of you. And yet so many of us have a hard time receiving that or thinking of God or ourselves in that way. For me, a natural example would be my children. I'll take our 18-month-old B at the moment. Uh, Currently, she is a little minx of destruction, basically, in her house. Uh, in our house, and her favorite hobby is to walk around the house and to find bits of clothing and then go and put them in the toilet. So yesterday, we found a pair of socks in the loo. Uh, The day before, we found a T-shirt. That's just her new hobby at the moment. She also loves to go into the recycling bin, take items out, and then chuck them all over the kitchen floor like a piece of art. Uh, When she has dinner, some of the dinner ends up in her tummy, but a lot, as you can imagine, ends up on the floor. So in in terms of contribution to the running of the house, she's actually negative. She puts us back, right? She doesn't really do anything that's particularly useful. And yet, of course, when I pick her up in my arms and she gives me that grin, how do I feel? My heart is full. I'm overwhelmed with love for her. She is my dearly loved daughter with whom I am well pleased. Before she has done anything, even when she does things that have a negative impact, just for being B, I love her. And that is what God says uh, over you. And you know, God doesn't just love you, but he likes you. Do you know that? God really likes you. He likes spending time with you. He likes your personality. He likes your little habits, your sense of humor. He likes your interests. He's interested in your interests and hobbies, just as a good father would be interested in the hobbies of their child. And, you know, when we experience this reality in our lives that we are enough, just as we are, that before we wake up in the morning, we are delighted in. When we know the unconditional love of the Father, it brings a wonderful security from which we live. It brings a freedom and an ability to love others as we receive the Father's love for ourselves. We have absolutely nothing to prove because our worth and identity are completely set. They're fixed. It's not earned. It's not in question in any way. And, you know, one of the big temptations for all of us is to look to prove ourselves in different ways, to find our worth, 
to find our sense of being lovable, to find that our lives have meaning and value in different ways. For some of us, it could be our careers. If I just reach this level as a, in my career as a teacher or a banker or uh, a nursery worker or whatever we do, then my life will have meaning. Then my life will have value. Then my life will have worth. Then I'll have an identity. Or in romantic relationships, if I'm in a relationship with a man or a woman, then my life has meaning and I'm worth something. But if I don't, then I don't have value and meaning. Or it could be money. If I have money, then I'm secure. If I don't have money, then I'm not secure. Or our role in our family as mum. If I'm a good mum, then I'm worth something. Then I'm valuable. Then I'm secure. Then I have an identity. But when we live and we put such weight on these things, it causes great stress and anxiety because it's conditional and it's a massive burden under which we live. And God's heart for us is that we would know freedom and his love running through us. Lydia spoke last week and she mentioned a temptation in her life to find her value from being busy and achieving things, taking things off her to-do list uh, as a doctor, as a mum. Uh, doing exercise. She just absolutely loved ticking things off. And she found that for her, she was getting her identity from that. So she had to turn away from that. She had to repent. And she's had to learn to go on a journey of resting in God's love for her, even when she's not efficient, even when she doesn't achieve things. And for all of us, that thing will be different. And, you know, we see the results of receiving this unconditional love play out through the life of Jesus. For example, straight after the baptism, we read in verse 12, then the Spirit compelled Jesus to go into the wilderness where he was tempted by Satan for 40 days, verse 12 of Mark 1. And in Matthew and Luke's gospel, we get more detail on this temptation. And one of the things that Satan does is he tries to get Jesus to prove himself. And so he says this statement, if you are the Son of God. He tries to put Jesus' identity in question to make it seem like it's in doubt. But Jesus doesn't fall for it. He doesn't give in. Why? He doesn't need to prove himself because he's just had the baptism. He's just had that affirmation from his father. He's just received God's love deep in his heart. He knows who he is, so he doesn't need to prove himself in any way. And when we look at the life of Jesus, he is the most secure person who has ever lived the most comfortable in their own skin. And because of that, he was attractive to people because secure people tend to be attractive. When we go to the end of Jesus' life, as he's mocked before he goes to the cross, and it says that the soldiers were there and they blindfolded him and they were beating him and they were taunting him, telling him to prophesy, who hit you? And one of the amazing things about Jesus when he's mocked before the cross is he doesn't respond. His reaction, he's totally calm. And that's because he knows who he is. He knows his identity is God's son. He knows what he's doing. He doesn't need to prove himself in any way. The world thought he was a failure and a criminal. And yet he was confident in who he was. And as we begin a new year, this is one of the foundations that we all need to have in our lives to receive those words of the Father. You are my son my daughter. And just as you are before you wake up in the morning, before you do anything, you are loved. And as we receive that, we then have capacity to love others. But I also want to bring out this passage, the power or the role of 
God's word and spirit to help us receive God's love. As Jesus received the Father's love, he did so through God's word over him. You are my son whom I love. With you I'm well pleased. But also the spirit descending as a dove. And one of our values as a church is that we believe in the power of Scripture and Spirit together to bring transformation and change to our lives. So consider this for a moment. The phrase, God, God loves you, is said a lot, isn't it? It's said a lot in church, in conferences, uh, maybe Ned Flanders in The Simpsons on uh, bumper stickers. It almost becomes a cliche, God loves you, and we hear it so often. And yet, why is it that so many of us struggle to really receive that or experience that? That that what we know, what we hear, and then our experience seems to be quite different. Why is that? One of the ways of looking at this is the image of strongholds the Bible gives us. Uh, A stronghold is traditionally a term from battle where there is a wall which wouldn't let anything pass through. So a classic example of a stronghold would be a castle, right? You'd set up a castle so that the enemy can't get through. It's really difficult to penetrate into a castle. And the Bible says that in our hearts and minds, there are lies and false arguments which we believe. They become like a stronghold, preventing us from really receiving God's love in our hearts. But actually, as God comes with word and spirit... The Word of God is the sword of the Spirit, has power to break these lies, to break these strongholds, so that we can receive God's love in our hearts. Chris, I don't know if you can get this on the screen, um, but we're just going to look at 2 Corinthians 10, 3 to 5, just now as Paul kind of unpacks this a little bit. So in 2 Corinthians 10, Paul says this, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So Paul says, firstly, in verse 3 of 2 Corinthians 10, We do not wage war as the world does. What he's saying is that we are in a spiritual battle. If we're seeking to do something for God's kingdom, if we're seeking to live for Jesus in our lives, we enter into a spiritual battle. There is a power contest, and the enemy wants to prevent us from doing that, to take us down. And the enemy knows that the best way to take us down is in our minds. If the enemy has our minds, then he's got our lives. Jordan Singh, a pastor... Author from the States puts it like this The battle for the kingdom is the battle for your minds, and every battle of your mind is the battle for your day. And so, just uh, as an aside, when it comes to anxiety and depression, uh, whilst the medical and psychological um, elements to that are, you know, vital and so important, I do think often there is a spiritual element as well. And God's heart is to come and bring freedom in that. And we can play a part uh, as a church as we seek to be a church of word and spirit. But because the battle is the battle of the mind, the weapons that we fight with are word and spirit. Paul says we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. 
Does that make sense? So there's a lie, we believe that lie, and it stops us from really knowing God. And one of the things that the Holy Spirit does is he, he can bring to mind a phrase or a picture or a, a verse from the Bible that is relevant to encourage us, as we had just a moment ago as we were sharing words, but also to help break some of those lies and arguments that we believe so that we can truly encounter the Father's love. So to give you just some examples of what those strongholds could be, we might live with a stronghold of failure. If we, uh, when we grew up at school, we felt like we didn't achieve very much and we were told quite often that we weren't good enough, we might have a narrative in our lives that we are a failure. And because of that, we struggle to open our hearts to God and to believe that we're lovable. We might have a stronghold of guilt because of something that we've done in our lives. And that's a lie, that's an argument that's built up. We believe that, and that stops us from really believing that we're forgiven and lovable. We might have a stronghold of insecurity or anxiety or control because the family that we grew up in was um, chaotic and um, insecure. And so we've kind of carried that with us. And that stops us from knowing the fullness of God's love. Let me tell you a wonderful story uh, of a friend of mine um, and coming to faith and the role of word and spirit coming and breaking a stronghold and then bringing transformation. So this is a story of a friend called Kat. Um, she's not really called Kat, but I've changed her name. And um, I used to work with Kat um, when I was working in uh, Ealing in West London. And Kat grew up um, in Watford. She was a wonderful salt of the earth type of lady. And she didn't grow up in a Christian background at all. Uh, she wasn't interested in faith. In fact, she would say that she thought faith was really quite naff. Um, once someone from the local church came and chatted to her, um, and she was all very polite, invited her to Alpha. Uh, she said, yeah, she'd think about it, but she didn't really want to go, so she didn't end up going. She, she just thought uh, faith wasn't really for her. It was going to steal her joy and fun in life. And then um, she had a child, and she wanted to, that child to be baptized. So she went back to this church, and the church said, yeah, we'd love to baptize your child, but come on Alpha. And so she said, okay, I'll come on Alpha. So she went on Alpha, and she heard about Jesus, and there was a little bit more to the story than she thought. And she was kind of in this phase of exploring faith. She was going along to church to a little bit, but she couldn't really experience God. She said she struggled to experience God and she didn't really want to make a commitment. And what was going on in Kat's life is that many years before she had had an abortion and she lived with this narrative that she was a bad mother because she'd had this abortion and she had this stronghold of shame and guilt in her life. And she'd had other kids since then but she just had this narrative that she is a bad Mother, and because of that, it stopped her from really being able to receive God's love in her heart. So one day she's at church, and um, during a time of ministry, someone comes up to her with a really specific word for that stronghold in her life. And this person says, I just sense the Lord say that you're a great mother, that you're not a bad mother, and that anything that you've done in your life, you've been completely forgiven of. And for Kat, in that moment, it was like the war had been broken. The floodgates of God's love could come in. There were tears. She had a profound experience of God's love. And as she's continued to live in the Father's love, um, what's happened in her life since then, she gave her life to Jesus. 
She's moved around, but what she does now is she still works as a hairdresser. She was working before, but she also works part-time for the church, and she runs something called Beesum, which helps to give um, basic goods to those who are in poverty and need in the local area. And she's also recently just started an anti-trafficking ministry, and she goes out onto the streets of uh, Southall particularly and Ealing and Acton, and she walks around and she finds girls who've been prostituted And she seeks to love and care for them and share the love of Jesus with them in a practical way. So that's an example of someone who has received God's kingdom in their life and in their heart. And that has meant that they've had power then to see God's kingdom come in the local community. Does that make sense? And this is what this series is all about. The more of God's love we receive first, then we'll be able to give it away. So that's why we say, start with me. And the more that we live under God's reality, God's voice in our life, then the more these arguments will be broken, these strongholds will be broken, the more we'll be able to receive God's power, and the more fruitful we'll become um, in being the presence of Jesus to a broken and hurting world. You are my son, you are my daughter, whom I love, and with you I am well pleased. And I don't think that we can underestimate the power of these words as we seek to live under them and the difference that it will make. For each of us, that lie that we believe will be unique to perhaps experiences that we've had in life, as I said. I wonder what it might be for us. So maybe this morning there's an opportunity just to ask God, is there something that's getting in the way of me truly receiving from you in fullness? So why don't we stand and we're just going to have a moment to Invite God's presence to come. Let's stand together.